This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. As promised on last week's show, we're going to go to a couple of San Franciscans for our uh, chatting today. First of all, with the immortal Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. He'll be coming for a one-night event here on Friday, August 23rd, in conjunction with the Humor Times' is, uh, well, I forget which anniversary it is, 23 years, I don't know, something like that. But as you may know, uh, James Israel and the Humor Times brings you Will Durst in printed form, and we bring him in audio form. He's always fun to talk to, and we're going to do that for most of segment three today. And uh, in eye anatomy news, <laughs> and you don't get to say that very often, we reported some weeks back that uh, scientists have now discovered a new layer of human anatomy in the eye. This very thin, mysterious layer, and we're going to have San Francisco ophthalmologist Dr. Gary Aguilar bring us up to speed on that. Sometime next month, Gary Aguilar will return and speak with us about uh, what happened to our 35th president. He is an expert on the medical evidence in the case, which is, in a word, a mess. Which, frankly, it should not be if the official story is to be believed. And here's just a hint. It's not. But let's begin today's program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. We make a habit of looking back on this program before we look to the present and the future. And we realize that there are a lot of views about history. Henry Ford said it was bunk. Napoleon posed the question of what is history but a set of lies agreed upon. George Santayana once said that those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. Of course, I think numerous wags have pointed out along the way that even if you do know history, you may still be condemned to repeat it. Because, I think it was Nietzsche who said this, uh, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. But we're not succumbing to that view, and we never have. So let's take a look back. The date in question we're looking back on is the 15th of August. It was on August 15th in 1824 that the African country of Liberia was founded by freed American slaves. On August 15th in 1843, the Tivoli Gardens opened up in Copenhagen, which is in Denmark. I didn't realize it was that old. On this date in 1877, that would be August 15th, American inventor Thomas Edison suggested the use of the word hello when answering the telephone instead of ahoy, which is what was preferred by the telephone's inventor, Alexander Graham Bell. For the record, Mr. McMillan still prefers ahoy. August 15th was a big day for celebrations. On that date in 1939, MGM's The Wizard of Oz had its premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, California. They made a lot of movies before that one, and they've made a lot of movies since that one, but I'm not sure they've ever made a better movie. Of course, I do hasten to add that the opinion that The Wizard of Oz is as good a movie as any ever made is one that does not necessarily reflect those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But if you don't think The Wizard of Oz is a great movie, there's something wrong with you. August 15, 1945, VJ Day was proclaimed by the Allies after Imperial Japan agreed to surrender unconditionally in World War II. 
And it was on August 15th in 1969 that the Woodstock Music and Art Fair opened in upstate New York. Nearly half a million people converged on the concert site. Despite a lot of rain and a lot of mud, the audience enjoyed nonstop performances by singers like Janis Joplin, Joe Cocker, as well as the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix. Our quote today comes from Win Cao Ki, former president and former vice president of the Republic of Vietnam back during the time of the American War. Said Ki, people ask me who my heroes are. I have only one, Hitler. I admire Hitler because he pulled his country together when it was in a terrible state in the early 1930s. But the situation here is so desperate that one man would not be enough. We need four or five Hitlers in Vietnam. Yes, Nguyen Cao Ki was quite a guy. Twice during the conflict going on in Vietnam when generals were switching sides and they couldn't decide who was on which side, back and forth, twice he threatened to bomb his own troops. I was reminded of this reading Francis Fitzgerald's uh, classic book on Vietnam, Fire in the Lake, which I hope to report on in the weeks to come. It's one of those been-meaning-to-read books that sometimes it seems to take a few decades to get to, but uh, boy, what a masterpiece, and I hope that I can talk about it uh, maybe next month. Although a lot of people look back uh, at Vietnam as not only being a a military catastrophe, uh, uh, but also a political farce. To that, I would just add, if you read the details about how it went down, that's really overestimating it. At any rate, moving right along, our quip of the day comes from uh, millionaire capitalist J.P. Morgan, who once said, if you have to ask the cost of owning a yacht, You can't afford it. Our joke of the day comes on the heels of our discussion a few weeks back with our aviation correspondent Vladimir Zarevika about uh, the Asiana Airlines crash at SFO. At a party last weekend down in Marin County, I was reminded by a distinguished author, something I have only a vague recollection of, but apparently when one of the Asian uh, carriers started flying into San Francisco and put up a big splashy poster to advertise that fact, Evidently, a wag with a spray paint can climbed up onto the poster to paint in, You've seen them drive, now watch them fly. For her part, the author, who is half Chinese, said that she was taught to drive by her mother, which is the Chinese side, to which she would simply add, What a disaster. Radio Parallax, for our part, is taking no editorial stance on this particular matter. All right, we've got a couple stats today. How about this one? According to the Gallup organization, 36% of Americans aged 18 to 29 say they tried marijuana, which compares to 56% of that age group back in 1977. And you know what? I don't believe that number. From 56% down to 36? Nah. Here's a couple other stats. According to USA Today, FBI agents gave their informants permission to break the law. That's right. Permission to break the law at least 5,658 times in the year 2011. They authorized everything from buying and selling illegal drugs 
to bribing government officials and plotting robberies. To which we can only add, your tax dollars at work. And how about this one? According to the Pew Research Center, 72% of Americans say they use social networking sites, up from just 8% of us in 2005. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Czech religious freedom, with the news that a Czech man was allowed to wear a colander on his head for his driver's license photo. The man claimed the headgear was required by his religion, Pastafarianism. And evidently, officials cited the nation's religious equality laws in granting that request. It was, conversely, a bad week for Religious freedom in America, with the news that a pro-life, with the news that a pro-life supporter, who was eager to volunteer at a Washington D.C. crisis pregnancy center, was turned away for being an atheist. Apparently, a Sarah Terzo said the clinic staff was initially welcoming, but rejected her help after learning of her atheism, saying they didn't have non-Christians working here. Terzo said nine other pro-life organizations would not let atheists volunteer either. And it was an ugly week last week for breakfast after Islamic radicals in the rebel-held Syrian city of Aleppo issued a fatwa banning croissants, claiming, and I would say correctly, that their crescent shape was a secret celebration of the West's victories over Muslims. And if my memory serves me correctly, the city of Vienna did indeed come up with the croissant after defeating invading Islamic armies. Of course, it's hard to believe that at this stage in the game, a breakfast croissant would have a bad effect on uh, the Islamic youth. And indeed, it's just this broad-minded attitude here at Radio Parallax that keeps us from issuing any fatwas. Well, let's do a bunch of miscellaneous things at this point, uh, starting with a follow-up on the fact that uh, Pope Francis made some uh, comments a few weeks back that I think we talked about. The Pope made headlines, first of all, for using the word gay, and then adding to that, uh, in reference to being gay, who am I to judge? Well, it seems previous pontiffs didn't have much trouble judging. As far as this rumor goes, we're trying to uh, track down about uh, the supposed gay lobby of Vatican officials. It had something to do with uh, the resigning of Pope Benedict XVI. Well, the Pope made a statement to that effect and has not elaborated on it, and we've not seen much writing about that, but we'll continue to... uh, Keep our eyes peeled. And in other Catholic news, here's an item from Mental Floss, which is uh, one we find irresistible. I'm never quite sure about Mental Floss's scholarship, but I think I'll just quote this one directly. Said the magazine, Early settlers of Quebec were just as pious as other pioneers, but these good Catholics had a tough time following the Catholic Church's Friday dietary restrictions since there weren't that many edible fish around. I have to wonder about that. Why weren't there edible fish all over Quebec? At any rate, the piece goes on. There was, however, no shortage of beaver meat. So in the 18th century, the Quebecois asked the church to declare that the beaver was a fish. 
After all, they reasoned, it lived in the water and had a flat, scaly tail. Close enough, right? Well, the church agreed. (laughs) That's how the furry beaver got classified as a Christian fish. And apparently uh, the beaver isn't the only secular mammal that's been uh, religiously a fish. Venezuelans dial on capybara, which is the world's largest rodent. And uh, this semi-aquatic animal is eaten during Lent uh, for the same reason. It's a fish. All right, speaking of rodents, The Economist has a bit of a barn burner article, which uh, I guess I'll just quote from. The humble mouse is a doughty workhorse of science. Every day in laboratories around the world, the little critters are subject to all manner of carefully controlled insults, from electric shocks to the induction of cancer. But mice in the lab of Shigeru Watanabe, a psychologist at Keio University in Japan, have a more enjoyable life than most. Watanabe is not interested in their bodies, but in their minds. Specifically, he's exploring their taste in fine art. As Dr. Watanabe described in a paper published last month in Public Library of Science, he was curious to see whether his mice had a preference for certain painters. He put them in a chamber one at a time and showed each a pair of paintings by different artists. Since science lacks, at least so far anyway, a a way to read mouse minds, he measured how long the animals remained near one or another of the pictures. And it was noted that his mice expressed no particular preference between a picture by Kadinsky or one of Mondrian. And apparently the rodents uh, exhibited a similar indifference distinguishing between, say, Renoir or Picasso, notes The Economist. That is, perhaps, not a very surprising result. But things got more interesting when Dr. Watanabe added morphine to the mix. The mice were injected with the drug when viewing one picture and with an inactive saline solution when viewing another. After a few repetitions, they began to associate one of the painters with the morphine high and would spend longer standing next to it. This implies that the mice were able to tell one painting from another when given an incentive to do so. But of course, Dr. Watanabe took this just one step further. He found evidence that as well as simply telling one picture from another, his mice might be able to appreciate individual style. Now, when they were shown a number of paintings by a single artist after being given morphine, they showed a preference for other works by the same artist that they had never seen before. A similar result was obtained if the experiment used milk rather than drugs as a reward. I was wondering why they had those bowls of salted peanuts out at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco. So will this cause researchers to put up more fine art in the various mice laboratories around the world? Well, we don't know. But if these creatures are going to give up their lives for science, we do hope they give them some good artwork. And one place laboratories may be able to pick up some good artwork, unfortunately, may be in Detroit. If Detroit falls into bankruptcy, the Masterworks, which they have in the Detroit Institute of Art, well, could go on the auction block to help satisfy the city's staggering debts. Piece by Corey Williams in the B. Although the auction would raise much needed cash, they would also strip the city of its cultural riches, including paintings by Rivera, Renoir, and Matisse. We'll have to continue to follow that story. We do suspect that if Detroit sells off a Renoir or a Matisse, there will probably not be riding in the streets, which is more than you can say for Huntington Beach which apparently experienced a near riot a couple weeks back in the aftermath of the U.S. Open of Surfing. 
Apparently, police spokesman uh, told Newsman that in the final day, officers were unable to get an increasingly rowdy crowd to disperse from surrounding streets. Now, if you've been to Newport Beach, now if you've been to Huntington Beach uh, any time recently, and I'm sad to note that last year I did travel down to an area that I used to hang out in three decades ago to be horrified at what they have made of what was once a funky, charming beach community. It has been turned into a high-end, sterile, stucco, and above all else, soulless community. I was kind of hoping that the surfers uh, took one look at Huntington Beach and decided to get feisty about it, but unfortunately that's apparently not what got their ire up. But, uh, God, what an awful place it's become. I did a disclaimer, right? Yep. Okay. I was communicating a few days back with one of my fellow uh, KDVS public affairs hosts, Richard Estes, purveyor every Friday of Speaking in Tongues. We got talking about what a shame it was that uh, Davis used to have a wonderful factory, the Hunt Wesson factory in the edge of town where this correspondent uh, worked for six summers during his college career. And I chanced to drive by there last week and was just, again, just horrified by the fact that it is all gone. Richard certainly delves into labor issues more than we do um, on this program. But uh, I think he and I certainly have to agree that, boy, there's some issues out there that have to be dealt with. Uh, The Week magazine, for their controversy of the week in the last issue, talked about uh, this matter of minimum wage. Although I did not notice this, and I don't know whether you did, dear listener, but uh, last week, thousands of workers at major fast food chains in this country, including McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, and Taco Bell, staged one-day strikes during peak meal times to demand an increase in their wages, which now average just $7.40 an hour. The workers want their pay to double to $15 an hour, so they won't have to survive on food stamps and other public assistance. Noted Tom Philpot and MotherJones.com as if to make the protesters' case for them. McDonald's inspired much hilarity by issuing a helpful new sample monthly budget for its employees, explaining how to make ends meet on only $1,105 a month. The McDonald's budget allocates no money at all for child care, clothing, gasoline, or food. Predictably, the right-wing elements of NationalReview.com didn't agree, saying that a low-paying job beats no job at all. Making the case that if fast food chains had to double salaries, they'd make do with far fewer workers. The business model for McDonald's and its competitors is based on a high volume of sales of low-cost burgers and fries with very thin profit margins. Paying workers more would mean either raising the cost of a burger by about 25%, That's if workers' wages went to $15 an hour, thus alienating its low-income customer base or cutting the numbers of employees and replacing them with touchscreen computers. This prompted a response from the DailyBeast.com asking if profit margins are so thin, how did McDonald's CEO Don Thompson make $13.8 million last year? Daniel Gross noted that fast food companies have peddled the myth for years that the brutally low wages they pay are simple functions of market forces. But it's emphatically not true. He notes that several burger chains, including the In-N-Out Burgers here in California, start employees at a supposedly ruinous $10.50 an hour and give them medical benefits, paid vacations, and a 401k plan, too. He notes that if McDonald's workers were paid at least $10.50 an hour, the price of a Big Mac would rise by only a nickel. The final comment was sounded by Jordan Weissman in TheAtlantic.com, noting that... uh, 
there is a magical world of fast food that already exists. It's called Australia, where McDonald's adult workers already earn the U.S. equivalent of $14.50 an hour. As a result, burgers and other menu items cost about 70 cents more, and the franchises save on labor costs by squeezing more productivity out of each worker and replacing some with touchscreen ordering kiosks. Boy, I thought about this piece a couple times when I uh, ate some fast food in the last few days while on the road. And, you know, we really have to side with labor on this one. You know, whether it's 70 cents more for an item or a nickel more, it certainly seems that is a small price to pay to have workers in these industries get a living wage. And uh, just to round out uh, our our first segment here, I would note that um, at a party two weeks ago, I was talking about Hawaii with an old high school buddy whose dad apparently had grown up uh, just a few miles from where I have family over in the Hawaiian Islands. And he just made a passing remark about how the islands have changed and, and the fishing industries that used to support so many uh, uh, people among the native population have really taken a hit. National Geographic has a, a piece uh, out as of yesterday talking about how scientists are using historic venues to fill in missing fish records, taking things like uh, the Trader Vic's luncheon menu from Honolulu to see what was on the menu back in 1958. And this tends to back up what my friend's dad was saying. A lot of fish uh, are gone. They noted that uh, reef fish like grouper, mullet, and flounders were highly prevalent before 1940 but became rare after World War II. I think I'll just close by noting that if you go to Hawaii or the tropics and, and you know somebody offers you up one of these sport fishing adventures... My advice to you is, don't do it. You got some highly trained captain with a high-tech boat using sonar to go out there and pull in some large trophy fish. Why? So you can feel more virile somehow that you caught this big fish? And I admit, a lot of people get a lot of pleasure out of fishing, and I've just, you know, never seen the attraction myself. There's a big difference between fishing for your dinner and going out to get some big old marlin or tuna plucked out of the tropical seas and have your picture taken with it. And I think on that note, it's time to take a break. Although I don't want to end on a downer. Let's just one little upper item here. All right, here's a piece of tax law you may not know about. Someone wrote, asked Dow Jones to uh, inquire about an article on the federal estate and gift tax laws. They made the comment that you can pay for someone's tuition or medical expenses as long as you make those payments directly to the educational institution. They asked, does this include relatives who aren't immediate family? The answer was yes. It doesn't matter whether you are related to your lucky beneficiaries. You can do this for your niece's children or even for total strangers. They added, here is some background on what is known as the annual gift tax exclusion. You can give away as much as $14,000 this year to anyone you want or to each of as many people as you wish without any tax considerations or burdensome paperwork. The recipient can be anyone you choose. The recipient doesn't owe income tax on your generosity as long as your gift is really a gift and not an attempt to mask a payment for some goods or services. It's an item that might not come up very often, but boy, if it does, good thing to know, don't you think? All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got lots more. Stick around.